This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hi everyone and welcome to Wanderlust Off The Page, a travel podcast designed to help you discover the most fulfilling travel experiences on the planet. From culture and history to nature and wildlife, we're going to be taking you behind the scenes of the magazine to go deeper into our favourite destinations and meet the travel writers, experts and personalities who will bring our stories to life. My name is Lynn Hughes, the founding editor of Wanderlust. And I'm Rosa Fitzgerald, the special features editor at Wanderlust. Now, if you're new to Wanderlust, here's what you need to know. Wanderlust is the UK's leading independent travel magazine, which has been taking the road less travelled since 1993. We've won numerous awards along the way, and to this day, we continue to inspire our audience of curious travellers with each issue of our magazine, as well as our website. Both of these are just filled with off-the-beaten-track experiences and some of the world's most exciting destinations, both near and far. Responsible, conscious and sustainable travel is always at the very heart of everything that we cover. So do be sure to check us out by heading to wanderlustmagazine.com or become a Wanderlust Club member and join our community of serious travellers for just £35 a year. That's about 50 bucks. This will get you six beautiful collectible issues, exclusive member-only competitions and events, access to our entire online archive back to 2010, plus heaps of other benefits. And of course, be sure to hit that subscribe button on the Wanderlust Off The Page podcast as well. So Rosie, what's coming up today? So in this issue, in true Wanderlust style, we're going to be taking you thousands and thousands of miles from home to a remote island called Rapa Nui, also known as Easter Island. Uh, now, Lynn, you have a bit of a thing for remote islands, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I must admit, I do. I, I even live on an island, not a remote one. It's in the River Thames. But I've definitely got a thing about islands. And uh, yeah, Wanderlust was actually schemed out in the Galapagos Islands, somewhere I've been lucky enough to go to several times. But perhaps the most far-flung one I've been to is St. Helena, right out in the Atlantic. Uh, but I've got to say that Rapa Nui, Easter Island, has been on my travel list for so many years. And I've got a linkling that this week's podcast and special guest is going to make my me want to go there even more. <laughs> Absolutely. Our special guest this week is travel writer and Wanderlust friend Shafik Medji who has been lucky enough to go to Easter Island three times. And his story was so inspiring, it made the front cover of the Wanderlust magazine in 2021. Yeah, so Shafiq is going to be in conversation with Aaron Miller, and he'll be bringing the unparalleled beauty of Easter Island to life, and will explain how the first settlers managed to get there in the first place, and how being in such a remote place in the world makes you feel, how the indigenous culture has flourished in recent years. So we look forward to hearing in Shafiq's own beautiful words his experience of seeing the mysterious Moai up close. Rapa Nui, or Easter Island, is one of the remotest inhabited places on Earth. 
It was settled more than a thousand years ago by intrepid Polynesian navigators who sailed for thousands of miles across the uncharted ocean in double-hulled voyaging canoes. They described the island as the navel of the world. Nothing existed but this sliver of rock and the infinite horizon of the sea. It is a place of unparalleled beauty, a volcanic island with crater lakes, caves, grasslands and beaches, home to a culture like no other, with a rich and mysterious history. Shafiq, so nice to meet you. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh my God, am I so jealous of you? Easter Island is somewhere that I've just wanted to go forever. I've never managed to get there yet, but after reading your article, it's now gone to the top of my hit list of places that I absolutely have to visit. And you've been multiple times, right? What is it that keeps kind of drawing you back to this such a remote place as this? Yeah, I mean, I've I've been really lucky. I've been three times, and you know, Easter Island is somewhere that you often describe as a bucket list destination, somewhere that you you must visit once. To have visited it three times, I feel incredibly privileged to do so. My fascination with Easter Island dates back to my childhood and visiting the British Museum in my hometown of London. And I saw Moai there, one of the famous monolithic statues, and I was just captivated by it as a small boy. And the other thing is, despite being a Londoner born and bred, a South Londoner born and bred, in fact, I've always been drawn and attracted to remote places, to isolated places, to places far away from the rest of the world. And uh, you can't really get further away from the rest of the world than Easter Island. Yeah, maybe it's because you're from South London that you're just looking for the exact opposite, right? It doesn't get more opposite than Easter Island than South London on a kind of busy Saturday afternoon. So let's start off with a bit of the history as well, because, you know, we know it as Easter Island, but is that the accurate term to call it? Yeah, so the name is slightly contentious. For the indigenous inhabitants of the island who have Polynesian heritage, they use the name Rapa Nui. So Easter Island, or Isla de Pascua in Spanish, comes from the first moment of European contact, which is when a a Dutch navigator spotted the island on Easter Sunday in 1722. So that's how it's commonly known. But um, when you're actually on the island, Rapa Nui is the best term to use. And I'm kind of fascinated, as I think a lot of people are, like, how on earth did people get there? I mean, they didn't come from there. So how on earth did they get there? And what were the kind of distances that they travelled? The story of the settlement of Easter Island is one of the great stories of exploration in world history. The Polynesians are the best navigators on Earth. So um, it is believed to have been settled around 800 to 1200 CE by you know a band of intrepid Polynesian navigators. And they sailed for thousands of miles uh, across the uncharted ocean in double-hulled voyaging canoes. It's an absolutely incredible, incredible journey. And then when they when when they arrived, of course, they embarked on this frenzy period of statue carving that's almost without parallel in the world. Yeah, it sort of blows my mind how you could set off from a beach 2,000 miles away in a canoe, you know, and just kind of paddle off and not even know where you're going. I mean, that must have been one of the most dangerous and just incredible journeys of all time. Absolutely. And I think we've had lots of, particularly in the 20th century, there were lots of outlandish theories from European and North American scholars who were trying to explain how the island must have been settled by people from uh, South America and that uh, it couldn't possibly have been uh, 
have had the Polynesian origins, it really clearly has, as even a short visit to the island makes abundantly clear. One of the things I'm really curious about is I've never been somewhere that remote and can you feel it? Like, do you get a sense of it when you're there, that remoteness? You really do feel it. When you reach the high points on the island, which are these volcanic peaks, the volcanic peaks that created the island in the first place, and you gaze out and you can see across to the two edges of the island and you can you just see the ocean all around you. It's humbling, really. It, it's I imagine it's a sensation in some way similar to being in space. It kind of reminds you how small you are, really, in the scheme of things. It's a special feeling. And I think because it's so small, because it's a small population, there's around 7,000, 8,000 people on the island now. You're a tiny speck of, <laughs> speck of earth in the middle of a great ocean. You mentioned that they call it the navel of the world. I'm, I'm curious where that name came from and if it was perhaps related to, you know, the ancestors of those initial voyagers. Did they have a sense that there was another world out there or did they, did they come to believe that this was the center of the universe? This little tiny island was the world. I think a bit like all of us, we all think of our own lives, <laughs> our own locations as the center of the universe, as the, you know, we're, we're all the lead actors and actresses so in the true. Hollywood blockbusters <laughs> of, our, of our lives. And I think the people of Rapa Nui are, are no different. But there's there's strong oral traditions that tell stories about the settlement of the island. So mm. the story that they have themselves as a nation, as a culture, are of people that have made this epic journey that landed on this beautiful beach um, a millennia ago and then carved out an existence. I love that. We're all stars of our own Hollywood blockbuster movie. I think mine's a comedy, sadly. but uh... <laughs> It's better than being a tragedy. <laughs> yeah, it's better than being a tragedy. There's an outside perception of the people of, of Rapa Nui that has been popularised by lots of scholars and academics over the years to sell, sell lots of books. And it's a story of over-exploitation of the natural world, mass deforestation, a collapse. Actually, when you visit Rapa Nui, that's not the story. The story is of resilience and of survival in almost unimaginable odds. And what was the effect of those first Europeans that arrived? Like, how did they affect the culture and the people and the Rapa Nui that we know today? Yeah, I mean, it started with a Dutch navigator in 1722. And really, over the next 150 years, was disastrous for the people of, of the island. There were slaving raids from Peru. There were introduced diseases such as smallpox, which absolutely decimated the population. They were followed by Christian missionaries, by exploitative sheep ranchers. There was Chilean annexation in 1888, uh, the onset of colonialism. There's a census from the latter part of the 19th century that I believe showed that there was just 111 or thereabouts uh, Rapa Nui um, wow. inhabitants. You know, some estimates say that the fall in the population from all of these impacts was about 95%. This is also a modern story. You know, it took until 1966 for the Rapa Nui people to gain full Chilean citizenship and the right hmm. to vote. But now there's positive sides of the story, most definitely. And now roughly half of the uh, population of the island have Rapa Nui heritage. And really in recent years, uh, recent decades, the uh, the culture has flourished. Yeah, it's absolutely remarkable that you mentioned that resilience. But when, when you hear that in the historical context, the, the fact that they've managed to preserve and keep their culture alive through all those challenges is pretty incredible. 
And the most famous expression, of course, of their culture and their art are these moai, these genuine wonders of the world that have been wrapped in mystery since they were first discovered. And we can't talk about Rapa Nui without talking about the moai. The 15 monumental moai loomed imperiously out of the shadows on top of a 220-metre-long platform, or ahu. These giant head and torso sculptures, up to almost 9 metres tall and around 30 tonnes in weight, are an imposing sight at any time. But especially at daybreak, when the pre-dawn gloom melts away into a world of light, colour and contrast. In the background, the sun rose steadily out of the Pacific, illuminating the biggest surviving ceremonial structure in Polynesia with a burnt orange spotlight. Each statue faces inwards, back at the island, watching over the Rapa Nui people. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. You describe that so beautifully and oh my God, do I want to be there at sunrise looking at that. It just sounds like the most beautiful place to be and beautiful way to see these incredible statues. They genuinely are a wonder of the world and they fascinated people all over the world for decades or more. And what can you tell me about them? They're still shrouded in so much mystery. What can you tell me about them and why they exist and what they symbolize? So there are around a thousand on the island and obviously museums dotted around the world. And um, curiously, I mean, most people think they face out to the sea. Actually, they face inland. They're designed to watch over the the Rapa Nui people, provide protection and guidance um, if needed. One interesting thing about them is almost all of them are male. But there are a handful of female figures, and including one that's on display at the uh, the excellent museum on the island. And you can also see there's lots of different styles because, you know, the, the slightly cruder or rougher around the edges, Moai are the older ones. But obviously, as these master carvers developed their skills, they become incredibly uh, intricate and, uh, and well-designed the later you get. And the other thing I'd emphasise is that, you know, no matter how often you, you've seen pictures of them. Nothing compares with actually seeing them in the place that produces them on their ahu, on their ceremonial platforms. It's absolutely an mesmerizing sight. Yeah, I bet it is. And they're not just, I think we have a sense of them being these giant heads, but they're really not just 
the head. Yeah, there's a torso as well. And actually, if you visit Ranu Waraku, if you visit the quarry and you look around to see how they were produced, you really get a kind of a sense of they're much larger and more human-like than um, than you might expect. And one of the things that kind of makes them so amazing and, and full of this mystery is the scale of the production. Like you mentioned, you know, a thousand or more across the island and, and across the world. How long did it take to carve one? And it just seems like such a huge undertaking that must have taken decades or even centuries of continuous work. Yeah, I mean, I mean, these were huge, huge artistic feats. And really, it was communities of people that produced these. They were carved in situ. So, you know, they were carved from these huge chunks and then moved throughout the island. Essentially, in simple terms, they were a form of ancestor worship, which is something that's common across Polynesia and obviously in many other cultures around the world. But there's no, nowhere else has um, performed this kind of religious performance in such a way as as the moai these moai represented these revered ancestors and it took a huge you know it was a huge focus of life on rapa nui for you know the best part of a millennia so when you say they they represent revered ancestors does that mean particular people like particularly celebrated or important people in the culture when they passed on they were these statues were created to represent them yeah that's essentially the case and the present position of the Moai is not necessarily where they were originally stood. Most of the, the Moai would have been close to um, to family groups, to villages, to communities, which were scattered across the island. And they'd be very linked to these locations, to the people there. And they would represent predecessors would be looking down on the, uh, the descendants. Yeah, it's kind of a beautiful idea, isn't it? And as you say, they face inwards, which was really surprising to me. But it is kind of a beautiful idea that your loved ones, these important people in your family or important people in your community, they so much time was spent to create something important. And that investment of time kind of puts that love and meaning into that piece. And somehow those ancestors are still there guarding them. There's something beautiful in that, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think the attitude to family and the attitude to, um, to ancestors in Rapa Nui and, uh, you know, across Polynesia, I think it really resonates with all of us, actually. And I think there's probably lots that we could learn in the bonds that tie you back to um, the people that uh, laid the groundwork for you. And you almost need that physical representation in your life to make that bond strong and real in a way. And um, yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that. So let's talk about how they were moved, because this is a big part of the mystery, right? And for many years, I mean, maybe even now, it's still not conclusively been proven how these statues were moved. Like, how big are they? How much do they weigh? And how on earth did they transport them around the island? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, to give you a sense of the scale, the largest moai ever carved, which never left the quarry because it was too big, was almost 22 metres tall and it weighed around 200 tonnes. So to put that in context, if you can imagine around 30 African elephants, it's about that heavy. <laughs> so most of them came from a place called uh, Ranuwaraku. Now it's a grassy volcanic crater. And this is where the master carvers went to work. If you visit today, you find around 400 um, unfinished, broken, abandoned moai that kind of sprout from the uh, the soil at all these uh, erratic angles. They're actually quite a melancholic place. But the ones that were completed were then transported to their ceremonial platforms around the island. So now most people think that they were transported on wooden sledges or rollers. I mean, all traditions say they walked using their manner, which is their spiritual energy. 
Now, there is some evidence that this may be the case and maybe that they did actually walk because islanders and researchers have, have shown that you can um, essentially use ropes and teams of people to essentially swivel the upright moai from place to place. So um, the walking myth may actually uh, have its basis in fact. I love that. I feel like it's like moving a giant refrigerator. Like if you've ever had to slide your refrigerator out from its spot, and that's difficult enough. It is. It's, I mean, that, that's a perfect way to describe it. If you imagine an absolutely <laughs> giant industrial <laughs> size. A refrigerator the size of 30 African elephants. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's crazy, <laughs> but I really love that idea that the legends actually speak, speak truth as well, that they did walk in a way, that they were moved in that way. But, oh my God, can you imagine carving something for a year and then it breaking on the way to its place? It's heartbreaking because if you go to the quarry today, I mean, it almost looks as if the, you know, the carvers have just left. They've just put down their tools and that they're coming back. And you see some of them are almost perfect, but there's just a slight crack or that um, in the case of the biggest one, it's almost perfectly carved, but it's just too big to shift in that position. I can't imagine spending that, dedicating that amount of time <laughs> to producing something that is imbued with so much meaning. And then to have misfortune, an accident or something happen to it. Oh, I shudder to think about it. So people come to Rapa Nui, to Easter Island, by and large, to experience and see these fantastic moai for themselves. But I think when people get there, they're also surprised by the multitude of other things there to see and do and to find out about in the rest of that history. And one of the things that's kind of always fascinated me and kind of horrified me in some ways, to be honest, is the Birdman Contest. Hiking up the steep Teara or Teao Trail to the ruins of Orongo, a route once walked by Burman contestants, I made my way through eucalyptus, papaya, cypress and acacia trees, and across swaying grasslands dotted with purple flowering thistles, until finally reaching the vast crater rim of Ranukau, a 324 metre high volcano that dominates the southernmost tip of Easter Island. The calls of a swooping, hawk-like Kawakawa briefly sounded before being drowned out by a howling wind that threatened to buffet me over the precipice and into the flooded caldera below. I walked towards the edge of Orongo and peered down at the near vertical drop, the waves lashing the shore and at the seemingly impenetrable sides of Motonui in the near distance, marvelling at the athleticism, courage and sheer bloody-mindedness of the Birdman competitors who would swim back and forth from the islet and scale Ranukau's sheer cliffs. The Birdman contest has always fascinated me. I think it must be the most insane and dangerous contest that has ever been invented in the history of the world. What is it? Can you provide some more details on how on earth did something like this ever begin? I like to describe it slightly tongue-in-cheek as the most extreme Ironman triathlon uh, you can possibly <laughs> imagine. Like the Olympic competitors have got nothing on them. Ironman plus death. Ironman, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's Essentially, it's they date back to um, the conflicts that resulted in the toppling of the Moai in the 18th century. This 
provoked a crisis on the island. There was European contact at this time, which was, as we mentioned before, incredibly disastrous. And so there were lots of warring factions. There was there was a, um, a lack of faith in the traditional religious ideas and beliefs. It was a crisis of religion in many ways. So this all prompted the various warring factions to come together to collectively try and develop a new set of religious beliefs to help restore order. And what they came up with was a competition in the spring, which coincides with the seabirds and particularly the sooty terns that nest here uh, every September. So each, uh, each group on the island, each community on the island would put forward a young man who would compete to get the first sooty turn egg of the year from an islet just off the shore. Um, they would have to clamber down a uh, sheer cliff to get there. They would have to uh, brave shark-infested waters. They would have to fight off other competitors. They would have to return, make the return journey with the egg intact, scale in the cliffs back to Orongo, which is a, uh, a ceremonial village. And the winner then essentially transferred the power to his chief. And the chief was named uh, Tangata Manu, Birdman. Uh, and he became the spiritual leader of the island for the next 12 months. Well, I suppose it's better than war, right? You know, <laughs> I, I, mean, as, as me, I mean, I guess there's some places in the world still where it'd be better to have a Birdman contest than anything else. It's like the old saying, it's, you know, war minus the shooting. It, <laughs> it seems crazy or fabulous or, you know, almost unimaginable to us here, you know, this survived for around 150 years on the island. It wasn't a short run wow. thing. It lasted until the 1860s and it only ended really because, you know, European settlement and colonialism was really started and the missionaries didn't want to have any truck with this um, this kind of pagan practice as they saw it. So it was a long-standing practice. And actually, if you still visit the island today, if you visit during some of the, the festivals, which often take place in um, February, for example, you will see some of these physical feats among many others but for the full epic Iron Man experience, um, you just have to use your imagination. And I bet it's easier to use your imagination when you're there because you actually got to visit the, the ceremonial village too. What was that like and, and kind of what's it look like and what, what does it feel like to be there? So Arongo, which is the name of the ceremonial village, is one of my favourite places to visit on the island. It's, it's often slightly overlooked because, for understandable reasons, the Moai dominate people's imagination. But Arongo offers a, um, an insight into a different part of the, uh, the culture. It's also an incredible, incredible location. It's high on this incredibly windy cliff top. It overlooks these very picturesque little, little islands just offshore. The water's churning below. There's birds overhead. And you see these kind of domed buildings that have been buffeted by the elements. Many of them are covered by these beautiful petroglyphs. And it's a, um, it's a haunting place to visit. And really, if you want to understand Rapa Nui, uh, and particularly its more recent history, particularly over the last 200, 250 years, it's an essential place to visit. Rapa Nui has kept its culture alive in, in many amazing ways and, and fascinating ways, but there's one aspect of it that still remains a mystery, and that's the Rongorongo tablets, that written language that is still yet to be deciphered. Like, what did you find out about that when you were over there? Yeah, so, so after my first visit, I started to do a bit more research because I became fascinated by Rapa Nui history and culture. And one of the things I learned about has been Rongo Rongo. We know an awful lot about the Moai, we know an awful lot about the... Um, assessment of the island and the culture of the people. But Rongo Rongo is one of those tantalising things that's, that just feels um, slightly out of reach. It's a really significant thing. This is the only indigenous writing system that developed in Oceania before the 20th century. It's a pretty incredible thing. Today, it's represented on these wooden boards 
which are called tablets, essentially. But they look, if you imagine a cricket bat minus the handle and covered <laughs> with these beautiful geometric glyphs, some of them resembling human forms or animals or plants, others uh, abstract circles and crosses and chevrons and lozenges and, and so on. This is Wongo Wongo. So according to all raw traditions, these tablets were brought over by the first settlers Within academia, there's disagreement about when the, the writing system emerged. So some will say it long predated European contact. Others argue that it emerged perhaps as late as the 1770s after the Rapa Nui people had uh, seen European writing for the first time during a Spanish expedition to the island. It's thought that Wongo Wongo is primarily used for religious purposes and was probably only understood by uh, the local elites. But a lot of this is speculation. You know, knowledge of the script began to disappear in the 19th century as the impact of colonialism and, and, and all the trauma that the people had gone through over the preceding years really had an impact. And yeah, so today it remains one of, uh, really one of the world's great linguistic mysteries. It's, it's still, um, there's lots of theories, but it's still undeciphered. That's kind of amazing. I like that there's still some mysteries left in the world. Do you think it'll ever be deciphered? Are there people still actively working on it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's still somewhere that's studied and there's lots of theories, some of them quite outlandish. One of the problems is that there's fewer than 30 of these um, Wongo Wongo tablets in existence today. Interestingly, none of the originals are on Easter Island, although there are a couple of replicas in the museum. So one expert, one uh, Rapa Nui expert that I spoke to recently um, about this, believes they'll never be deciphered and that there just isn't the, the amount of available data for uh, linguists. To, uh, to essentially to be able to crack the code. But some others believe that uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence essentially, could provide a breakthrough in the future. It has done with scripts that have similarity with, with Wongo Wongo. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. So the Wongo Wongo tablets remain a mystery and it's good to have some of those mysteries left. But aside from that and the Birdman contest, there are a lot of other both natural and man-made wonders just kind of crammed into these 63 square miles, which is really nothing. It's about the size of the Isle of Wight, I think. Measured by wonders per square inch, Easter Island must have the most bang for its buck anywhere in the world because there is a lot to see. At the deserted site of Ahuakivi, I find seven virtually identical moai, said to represent the seven explorers who first discovered Rapa Nui. And then from there upwards, to the summit of Maunga Teravaka, the highest peak on the island, I cast my eyes inwards, as the moai do, and outwards into the vastness of the Pacific. And I'm struck again by a sense of isolation. Here on this tiny speck of land, where the Rapa Nui people live, surrounded by hundreds of moai and the never-ending ocean. I love the way you've written that. It gets such a beautiful sense of what it must be like to stand up there and, and look out across the island. Aside from the cultural parts, what are some of the other things that you would recommend doing on the island while you're there? So from the, from the Moai site, you know, there's something of a circuit that uh, visitors will travel around to see, all of which are worthwhile. Ranu Raraku, the crater, uh, Ahu Tongariki, which is the biggest site 
But um, if you can spend a bit more time, there's lots of um, lesser visited Moai sites that offer a, uh, a remarkable insight into uh, the local culture, one of which is Ahuakivi, um, the explorers, as they're sometimes known. Something completely different that I always find interesting are the lava tubes. Easter Island is a volcanic island, and some of these lava tubes stretch for kilometres. And these were absolutely crucial for the, the people of Rapa Nui. They were used for shelter, they were used to collect rain water, which is vital on an island that's desperately short of uh, fresh water. They also created uh, favourable microclimates. So if you explore them today, you'll find uh, crops such as bananas, pineapple, taro growing in them. They're really remarkable things to see. And what about some of the other activities like hiking? I think there's some incredible beaches there and stuff like that. Like in terms of your whole trip there, what were some of the other things you did that, that really caught your eye, some of your favourite experiences? For a small island, it packs a big punch and um, there's an awful lot of outdoor things to do on the island. It has some beautiful beaches. Anakena is a, you know, it's a glorious sandy beach with palm trees and Moai, inevitably enough. It's a wonderful place to swim. This is where the very first settlers landed, according to the oral traditions. The horse riding is great on the island and also there's lots of treks as well. I mean, we've talked about the Birdman contest. I mean, you can retrace their footsteps up to the uh, ceremonial site of Orongo. That's something you can do on your own. You don't need to guide for it. Easter Island is also wonderful for diving, as you might expect. The surrounding waters are incredibly clear. They're protected by a big uh, marine reserve. You know, you're a long way from anywhere else. The other thing is you, you want to spend enough time just soaking up the atmosphere in Hangaroa, which is the town talking to local people, really kind of slipping into the um, the local rhythm of life as well. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that contemporary culture on the island today. What's that like? And did you stay in the town? And, you know, what are the, some of the things you can do there? Yeah, essentially, if you visit, unless you stay at one uh, extremely expensive uh, and also very good lodge, which is uh, a bit a bit outside the town, you're invariably going to stay in, in the town. That's where almost everyone on the island lives. So Hangaroa is an interesting place today. You know, the population of the island is roughly 50% indigenous Rapa Nui and then 50% settlers from uh, mainland Chile. And there's also a sprinkling of um, foreigners from further afield, some of whom own restaurants or other businesses and that kind of thing. You have a mix of cultures and um, the settlement on the island from the mainland is often, there are often concerns about it, but it's also given birth to kind of a modern contemporary blended culture on the island. So you'll see people playing football just as much as, you know, following traditional kind of arts and crafts. You'll see people eating traditional meals and you'll see people eating empanadas and steaks as you would on, on the mainland. It's a, it's a more cosmopolitan place than you might expect. Tourism is obviously a really important part of the island's economy, but with so many more visitors than locals that live there, is there a kind of dynamic between that sort of economic necessity and also the necessity to protect the heritage and culture and, and landscapes? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you, you summed it up perfectly there, essentially. The economy of, of East Island relies on tourism, something in the scale of 100,000 people a year were visiting before the pandemic. This is on an island with a population of around 8,000. The economy depends on it. But this has, you know, of course, a serious impact on what is quite a vulnerable environment. Water is an issue, uh, lack of facilities is an issue, and tourism puts pressure on that as well. And we haven't even talked about, you know, 
<laughs> climate change and plastic waste and all of these things that are a big issue. So um, it's a difficult situation. Essentially, there were no easy answers to it. People welcome tourists, but tourism is also a threat to a certain extent, or mass tourism certainly is. How could I see it responsibly if I'm, and I am, desperate to go there and see it one day? How can I do that as a responsible tourist? Let's, you know, look at the elephant in the room to start off with. You have to fly there. There's no getting away from it. It's about a five and a half hour flight from uh, mainland Chile. So you didn't fancy the 2000 mile dugout canoe route then? I mean, I say it's the only option. I say it's the only option. <laughs> Obviously, it is possible to sail as, as you know, they've been very... It's been know, proven. It's been proven. It's been proven both from the South American mainland and, of course, from the Polynesian uh, yeah. archipelago. You could try that. I'm sure there's a wonderful story in that <laughs> if you make it. Um, but uh, if you're a bit less adventurous, you're going to have to fly. And unfortunately, you know, most people only go for a short period of time. I think the average day is about three days. From a carbon emissions point of view, that's obviously not great. If you can put that aside, what I would advise is you can spend your money wisely and so that it has a positive impact on the local community while you're there. One of the ways to do that is to stay in the small, locally run guest houses and homestay accommodations or even the hostels. Book with them directly. Pay all your money to them. Don't pay the money to uh, major online travel agencies. I think the other thing that goes along with that is you need to behave responsibly and with respect, particularly with regards to the Moai. You know, these are incredible things to see. And I, I felt it as well. There's this real, you see them and you want to touch them. There's a tactile demand to it. Mm. This is deeply disrespectful. And, you know, and lots of um, insensitive tourists have found themselves, there is a, there is a prison a very small prison on uh, Easter Island. That, so sometimes uh, they find themselves in the uh, in the cell there. But really, the key is to educate yourself about the local culture. And the best way to do that is to take one of one of many really well run uh, local guided tours. Talk to local people. Read up beforehand as well, and just having aware that you're in a incredibly privileged position. Every time I step foot on it, it's a privilege, and. and we need to have that attitude when we visit. So help me plan my trip. One of these days I'm going to get out there, hopefully sooner rather than later. When's the best time of year to go? How long should I stay? You mentioned three days is the typical length of time, but should I stay longer? What are your top tips for, for getting there and for what I should do when I'm there? In terms of the length of stay, I would say stay as long as you can. If you can stay five days a week, or so on. You won't be bored. You'll have a much richer experience than there's lots more to explore beyond the main sites. As to when to visit, you can visit year round. Essentially, Easter Island is, is broadly has a subtropical climate. It often rains, you know, rains a possibility throughout the year, kind of April to July is generally the wettest months. The warmest period of the year and the most popular for tourists is the December to April period. Temperatures there 20 to 25 degrees Celsius, so very comfortable, really. And also, if you visit during these months, there's often lots of cultural events on as well. So my last question is really, what are your hopes for the future of the island and also your hopes for the people that come to visit? What do you hope for them to get out of it? What do you hope for them to be inspired by? Rapa Nui is genuinely a unique place. And I think we in the widest sense of the word, have a responsibility to protect it and to help the 
and support the Rapa Nui to preserve their culture and identity. There were plenty of challenges over tourism. We talked about the climate crisis. There's a lot of pressure on resources. There's been a lot of settlement from the mainland, which has caused issues as well. But there's also been positive signs in recent years. Most of the island is covered by a national park and uh, the Rapa Nui people now have much greater autonomy over the management of that park to ensure that they both benefit from it and that it's run in accordance with their traditions. Also in recent years, there's been a creation of a new marine park, one of the biggest marine parks in the world, to protect the waters around Rapa Nui. The story of the Rapa Nui people is one of remarkable resilience in the face of great challenges. They're great survivors, um, they've created a remarkable culture, and they're really, they're really flourishing. And that's something that makes me confident for the future for them and, and for the future of East uh, Island more generally. Well, that's amazing, Shafiq. Thank you so much for bringing this incredible uh, island to life for us and for inspiring us all to get out there. I'll tell you what, next time we meet, let's make it on that beautiful sunrise surrounded by the Moai when that dawn gloom melts away and the sunrise just lights up the endless Pacific Ocean. I just want to be there so badly. Thank you so much for painting that picture and for telling us about this incredible place. It's a day, Aaron. I'll see you there. All right. Cheers, mate. Well, that just about wraps up our time here today. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to hit that follow button and subscribe wherever you get your shows. Please also come back for more. We have lots of incredible stories coming up and we just can't wait to share them with you. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Wanderlust Off The Page was presented by Lynn Hughes and Rosie Fitzgerald. The interviewer was Aaron Miller and the show was produced by Armchair Productions, the audio experts for the travel industry. 